This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Pam Forbes. She's the Chief Marketing Officer at Pernod Ricard North America. And she became the CMO in July of 2020, overseeing the marketing strategy for the company's portfolio of leading premium spirit brands. Prior to Pernod Ricard, Pam was at the Walt Disney Studios, where she was Senior Vice President of Customer Experience, Data, Science, and Insights. She led a centralized team responsible for insights, market research, marketing and media analytics, business intelligence, consumer data strategy, and the studio's CRM and loyalty marketing program. Prior to Disney, she spent nearly two decades at PepsiCo and Frito-Lay, shaping brands, global brands, analytics, consumer and shopper insights. On the show today, we talk about Pam's transition from insights leader and executive to CMO, what it's like to be CMO today, and especially of a portfolio of very storied brands like Absolute and Jameson and Kalula, among many others, and where she's focused today, both as it coming out of the pandemic, as well as what changed during the pandemic, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Pam Forbes. Pam. 
Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, it's not every day that I have somebody on the show that is related to two signers of the Declaration of Independence. Tell me about that. Yes, family's quite proud of it. We, uh, George Ross and George Reed, uh, both were signers of the Declaration, and we are related. Uh, George Ross, actually, his nephew married Betsy Ross. So, you know, there's a whole uh, history there of founding fathers, and I'd say rebels. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So let's talk about your career and your path. And and how did you, where'd you get your start? And then kind of what was, what's been your path to become CMO at Pernod Ricard, North America? Funny. It's it's great being at this stage in your career. I'm 30 plus years in to, to step back and think about how did I get here? Because <laughs> it was not really uh, on purpose. It was just sort of by chance, a number of, you know, left turns and here I am, which I'm thrilled. I never thought I'd achieve what I've achieved. It's been great. Um, very humble beginnings. My parents are public school teachers. My dad's an art teacher. Mom's a kindergarten teacher. They really couldn't help me much in guiding my career uh, advice. And all I can say is they they instilled in me a love of learning and a love of the create, creative arts. So I grew up really interested in lots of things, good in sports, good in math, good in school, but didn't really have one thing that, that stood out. And I had an art scholarship, almost went to art school, but my dad was like, mm, you don't really handle rejection very well. <laughs> And the uh, life of an artist is is tough. So I happened to have a friend whose father was a leader at one of the ad agencies. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, or suburbs, and uh, he was leading an account, uh, the Lincoln Mercury account at YNR. And I spent a day in high school with my friend and went through the agency, and I fell in love. I just was like, this is where I need to be. Got some really crazy advice. Uh, one of the head of media told me to, to learn stenography so I could become a secretary and work my way up. <laughs> and uh, I didn't take that advice, but I did, um, I did go on and get to business school, but went, I had been just hell bent on getting a job at YNR. And I wrote letters every year to different people at the agency saying, here's what I'm up to, here's what I'm doing. And uh, I graduated on a Friday, started Monday in the mailroom. <laughs> That's what you did back then. <laughs> That's amazing. Tell me a little bit more, like how long were you in the agency world before switching to marketing side? Uh, you know, having worked on automotive accounts, some big accounts, really some great big budgets, right? And we were doing, you know, unique things. I remember when the information highway came <laughs> about. And, uh, that's what we called it, you know, at first. And it's like, should we get on the information highway, the internet? And uh, we were the first to start exploring in that space because they had big budgets. So loved it. But I hopped around different agencies. And when I worked at Shiat Day on the Infinity account, that's when I discovered account planning, like real strategy and brand planning and consumer insights. And I was like, I want to do that. That was like a real passion. And uh, it was really hard to, to make a switch from account to account planning. And I kept trying and I kept working on projects, but um, it was a hard switch to make. So happened to have a great situation where my, my husband at the time was asked to open an office in Dallas for Cadillac and different. Uh, it was the D can't even remember. It got all, all those agencies get bought up, but it was technically a division of Leo Burnett. But I took a year off and I went back to school. I did some contract work. I was trying to break out of the ad agency world and worked at a small market research firm. And I just 
just kept exploring until I landed a 20 hour a week contracting job at Frito-Lay, <laughs> which was, um, which was it's a three month assignment. Uh, they had just bought Cracker Jack and they wanted to do some research analysis and synthesis of some work that had been already done. And within a month I had it done and within two months they hired me, but I had had to move from, uh, I was SVP at an agency leading an account to an associate manager, a third pay cut to break into client side and a whole new discipline that I really had no experience in, but I had done enough. I'd gotten my certification from University of Georgia. I just did everything I could to try to break into the strategy side of um, marketing. And within seven years, I was head of the, the research department at Frito-Lay. And then I I got the big job to lead all of Global Insights for PepsiCo for three years. So it worked out for me, <laughs> but lots of twists and turns along the way. And I, I like to talk about adversity advantage. It really, it was the toughest times and the toughest years that catapulted my career. So the 08 financial crisis, all of a sudden, my team was being asked completely different questions. It wasn't so much about ad testing and consumer research anymore. It was what, what's driving demand? What's driving the business? Is this, is, are people becoming more health conscious and, and snacking less? And we did all this work and, we, and I had to do modeling work and brought in new vendors. And I love the math side of, of the business. And we it was the thing that catapulted my career to the big PepsiCo role is that myself and, and the CMO at the time, Ann McCurgy, tore apart the business, figured out a lot of what we were doing was self-inflicted with different pricing actions we were taking that was slowing demand. And we revamped the entire growth strategy to be consumer-centered on demand versus what we can make. And we turned the business around. And within two years, Indra was talking about it in analyst calls about our demand-centric growth strategy. And it was a wild ride. So Ann and I are still together. We, I work for her today. She's the CEO of my company. So that's been a great relationship. Yeah. It sounds like a good partnership too. Just over the years, you've seen a lot together. We have. She's a fierce warrior. I love to dream and think and and I, I call it my talents are about seeing possibilities. Hers is making the impossible possible because she's a warrior. She's a communicator. She can rally a whole organization behind change and you need both to make big things happen. So we are quite the one-two combo, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. You've spent a ton of time in insights and research and analytics side, the math side, so to speak, of the business. How do you think that prepared you for the CMO role? Well, I actually didn't think I'd be a CMO, to be honest. <laughs> I called myself the CMO whisperer. Again, it was, I don't see data and analytics I don't see it as the math side. I know it is the math side, but all that data is consumer data. You know, whether you're it's tracking data, behavioral data, modeling data, it's all based in consumer behavior. So I see data as being consumer centric. I think the light went off for me, you know, after reading about and watching the movie Moneyball, right? Like you can make decisions, you can call yourself consumer centric, but unless you're making decisions based on the data, you're not really consumer centric. You might want to have consumer empathy and you might want to know about the consumer and learn about the consumer. But if you're really consumer centric, you're making decisions based on that consumer data. And they're not always the 
the ones you want to make. They're the ones that you should make. So I like to call myself the money ball marketer. And it's hard because you get really attached to some of the programs that you're working on or campaigns you're working on and they're not doing well and you have to cut bait and go fix them. And when you're attached to them, it's really hard to do. At least now that I'm in this seat, it's hard to do. I'm realizing how hard it is. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, it makes sense. It does make sense. I mean, and there, to your point about maybe not thinking about it as the math side, I mean, I've spent a good bit of my career in that space as well. And there's an art to it as well. A lot of times I I try to equate it to, um, I don't know if you've used this analogy as well, but with marketers that maybe are less analytically inclined, I'm like, Yes, I do speak the language of finance from time to time, but finance is all built on assumptions. <laughs> and where did those assumptions come from? A lot of times it's gut feel or, you know, benchmark data that we've got, but it's not it's not like a rock hard science at the end of the day, even though it's numerical. No, even even your, you know, hardcore modeling and AI, like there's definitely an art. You have to make choices in the the math that you're doing <laughs> and and you improve over time. At least that's what I find. You hone that model and you get it more accurate and more fine-tuned to your needs or your category. So typically, having spent several decades in the research and analytics field, typically don't like to buy things right off the shelf. Vendors like to sell them because they're highly profitable. They've already got a product to sell. But every, every category is a bit of a different dynamic. Um, snacks doesn't behave like sodas and they don't none of them behave like alcohol <laughs> so you have to understand your category and the that consumer dynamic that oh, makes sense let's talk about uh preneur card a little bit you've you've got an amazing portfolio of brands from things like absolute to jameson kalula and many others what were you surprised about most when you joined because to your point you you were coming you've been in snacks before you, i think there's a small stint at walt disney as well and the agency world alcohol is a whole new beast so what surprised you i was surprised first at healthy profits healthy budgets for marketing that's for sure which was was great but surprisingly little spent in media like anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of your total budget was only spent in media which I wasn't used to. I was used to media being the the engine of you know stimulating demand, whether it's drumming up tickets to go to the movies or impulse buys for snacks. So making sure you're top of mind, that recency theory of media. And so I, I was surprised. And the business is complex. So you've got a lot of your business in bars and restaurants, a lot of your business in stores. But uh, I think the industry overspent in experiential touch points. So festivals, events, sponsorships, stadiums, deals, even bar activations, which is only about 25 to 30% of the business. And COVID has got smaller even. So the, the prevailing thought is that you, you build a brand in a bar and then you, you, you sell it in stores. Having come from CPG, I it was like, I don't know if that's true. Maybe, maybe some brands, maybe, you know, some brands in their early infancy, you, you learn about in a bar, maybe certain categories are more prone to that. But, you know, with your mass brands, like an Absolute or a Malibu, like, I think media can work. And so we, we went and did the foundational work to find what drives choice, what is the path to purchase, a large study, large sample sizes. And we learned that actually in the U.S. especially, your spirits purchases are very highly planned. And you think about it, it's, it's 
some states, it's, you have to go to a state-run store. <laughs> so it, it's not an easy shopping experience for the shopper. And then you get there or you go to that local liquor store. You, again, it's not an easy shopping experience. So probably are thinking about, I'm going to go once. <laughs> what do I have to get so I don't have to go multiple times, right? And so you make that list and you, you have the brand on your on your list. So to me, that said, wow, this is highly susceptible to media, pre-point of purchase stimulation. So we made a major shift and more than doubled our media in the first year and then another 50% the next year. So we've been working on, we had to have campaigns to run, we had to have content. So by the time you create the content and and shift some of the spending, that was the biggest surprise. And it's working where we've got our models set up or understanding, you know, what's driving our growth. Still a lot of growth due to sales distribution, but our media is affecting velocity. Not on all brands, we're We've got some to figure out. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it, to your point, there's two levers: the the push through the 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 channel, so to speak, from the sales perspective, but the pull through that you're creating with the media is pretty interesting. And we'll get. I want to talk about the pandemic in a, in another minute. But we'll talk about that and how the how that shifted things as well. But that that seems like a really smart strategy, frankly, and in line with you know thinking from like Ehrenberg Bass or <laughs> mental availability and those types of things, making sure that the brand is is fresh with them. Because I'm probably going to date myself, but like Absolute was like all the rage when I was younger, probably below drinking age, <laughs> technically. And then it kind of fell out. And I was like, I always wondered, what, where'd it go? Like, it's still a good brand. like, And it's just, you never saw it for years. Well, I agree. This industry is does a lot of buying and selling of brands to different holding companies. I'll just say that. And so different leaders take over, different you know, just unfortunately, some of these brands get just sort of lost for a while. Absolute, again, one of my, I grew up on that brand. Um, I, I remember my first business trip at YNR. You know, this is how we uh, order drinks at the airport. <laughs> Absolute tonic. But there's a lot of latent love and demand for the brand. People just like, yeah, I used to love that brand, right? So what is it about the brand? One of the things we did as, as soon as I came on board was to really go deep. I call it the DNA of each brand. What is that brand's timeless story? That no matter what, it's just in that brand's DNA. And then let's figure out how to tell it in a timely way. We can't tell it like we used to tell it back in the day, right? We have to tell it in a way that's that's unique and, and on point for, for today. And Absolute's one that's always been on the forefront of culture and in the sort of in the zeitgeist of what's happening. So we've got to let Absolute go a little more uh, aggressive in having a voice. So I think you may have heard we we launched in 2020 um, Sex Responsibly, and it talked about alcohol's role in consent. The time, if you think about Me Too and uh, all that movement, like what is, you, you can't, you know, you can't use alcohol as an excuse. So that was a pretty risque campaign at the time. And of course, Absolute has a right to, to say that. It's just it's sort of been there. So, and then we moved on. We call these instigation acts. They're not part of a content marketing. They're more of a instigation PR and, and comms effort around our efforts. And then we did a vote responsibly, which was a little stunt. We actually ran, ran a television ad during the um, election. Vote first, drink second, absolute. Vote responsibly. So sex responsibly, vote responsibly. And then when things started opening up again last spring, we launched Mix Responsibly, which of the three, it got the most um, earned media. Uh, I think it just hit 
a tone in culture that said, we're all coming back out. We have to respect each other's wishes. I wear a mask. You don't. You know, we're going to mix responsibly. And so it, we had something like two billion impressions. So that's been fun trying to get Absolute again back in culture. Just recently, this past two weekends, Absolute was back at Coachella. And um, I didn't know this, but Absolute was a sponsor for, of Coachella for 10 years. And again, one of those touch points that I'm not sure has a, a strong ROI, but we were in this contract. So let's see how we can maximize it. How do I get more reach, more awareness, more impact for this little brand activation in a tent, you know, that has a little disco and a little selling cocktails. Like, how do I get more for it? And the team came back and said, what if we launched a, a similar experience in the metaverse and had a in a virtual and physical experience going on simultaneously? So we did that. And then we went on a media interviews. And uh, in the first weekend, we got 1.2 billion impressions of earned media just for being in, the, again, metaverse is hot topic. Everyone's talking about it. What is it? It's like, uh, as long as people can associate, oh, there's Absolute again on sort of the edge of what's happening. That's sort of the approach. It's it's exhausting work, though. <laughs> it takes a lot of people to, to put these kinds of campaigns together. Well, and it has to be timely, too, right? You're trying to capitalize on both an event as well as, if you will, uh, trends that are going on around in the general cultural zeitgeist, I guess, for lack of a better word. Well, let's talk about a couple other things, too. Um, there's this notion of premium Premiumization, I guess, is the best way to talk about it. And tell me about that trend with consumers and, and what you're seeing. It's a fascinating trend. We haven't really seen it in any other category. Working with a few consultants, they're like, wow, this is very interesting where you're, if you divide the category into price tiers, really high-end, ultra-premium, super-premium, prestige, and then sort of mainstream and value, the segments that are growing the fastest are the highest end. So consumers are trading up to more quality, higher premium priced spirits. You can see that with really high-end whiskeys or high-end tequilas. The tequila trend is really definitely accelerating that. But even, you know, vodka and gin, you'll see a premiumization happening, which is great leverage for any business, for sure. If you're in playing in those price tiers, that's, that is. Launching innovation is a bit easier too. You, you're able to command a little bit more of a price premium, right? So I think what's happening underneath it, consumers are learning that maybe the, those $15 cocktails I can make at home for with the really good stuff. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Um, same price. <laughs> There's also just how I want to, you know, spend my disposable income. Maybe I'm not traveling as much, but I'm going to splurge on a really high-end whiskey or tequila at home. So, and you know, just collecting, collecting even is, is a big deal as well. So it is a fascinating and we keep seeing if it's going to slow down, but it really isn't. I mean, related to that, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my personal life. My mother, who is, what is she, 69 now, I think? Yes, I think that's right. I should know. Uh, sorry, mom. But her friend, like best friend that she's had for, I don't know, decades and decades, I, I, to the point where I call her aunt. Um, even though she's not related, she started collecting whiskey and she doesn't drink. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> she's got probably the best bourbon collection I've ever seen and she doesn't drink. And so I'm just hoping, you know, that one day the gifts start rolling into my house because I will gladly drink it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All of it. That's funny. I, re- I remember reading a newspaper article. Some Someone's father had gifted him whiskey every year of his life and then sold it all and paid for his college tuition. <laughs> that, that stuff appreciates. It's not it like... Uh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, so premiumization, making more upgrading, if you will, when you're making a drink at home, that kind of takes us to the pandemic because I know my consumption shifted dramatically, obviously, like, uh, you know, we weren't going to bars or restaurants really and sitting there. And we started finding, I think first it was a cocktail kits and boxes, subscription boxes, and you still had to go buy the spirits to, to make the cocktail with. But that, I mean, we haven't dropped that yet. Like, like I'm, we're still doing that here. What are you seeing? We definitely stocked our bars. We saw a huge pull through early in the pandemic where people were stocking their bars and we keep waiting for like the floor to fall out because people aren't restocking, but they are. They're restocking and they are also going back out to restaurants. So it's quite an interesting shift in behavior around in-home consumption. We definitely fueled by a renewed interest in mixology. It's almost like it's like cooking. You can you can make so many different things with the different spirits and cocktails. I didn't know you could make cocktails using, you know, wine and champagne as well, which is some really good cocktails. So I learned a lot. I think everyone was learning a lot. There were some master classes on mixology, I think even on the uh, Apple platform. So it became really interesting and fun in in home entertainment. And I'd say the pandemic also accelerated more e-commerce because they had to. Uh, They're probably the last to kind of adopt home delivery of spirits. And once you could do that, we already talked about how horrible the shopping experience is for this category. So if I can just click and have it delivered or click and pick up, we saw a massive increase in e-commerce and even things like cocktails to go for restaurants, you could order out. And that was like laws had to be changed to to make that happen. And some of them have changed permanently to allow it to continue. So um, a lot of things made it easier. And then uh, at the expense unfortunately, probably of, of continued expense of beer. The fastest growing categories today, however, are pre-made cocktails. So consumers are deciding maybe that's a little complicated. I have people coming over. I need, I need to make them faster. I need pre-batched. So um, you, pre-made cocktails and ready to drink, uh, like in cans, uh, spirits cocktails are on fire right now. So we just launched a Jameson ginger and lime. Uh, we've got a line of Malibu and absolute cocktails and cans are just growing like crazy. So yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, 
consumer behavior has changed to a large degree, but it's benefited the category regardless. Like it just, it's just feels like the category has grown. <laughs> it has. Yeah. Probably at the expense of beer to, to a degree. I think beer was in wine somewhat. It was just convenient, right? Open a bottle, open a can. Now I'm, I've got more time at home so I can experiment with these spirits. And, but now that things are kind of opening back up, you can see convenience entering Spirits. <laughs> you know, we've talked about curious how all these trends are impacting marketing. And you've you talked about like your shift to for certain brands to focus on media. Um, you've got these instigations that you you talked about, which are I'm gonna shortchange it and I, I hope this is okay, but like it's really about earned and cultural impact potentially. And then you've got the e-commerce or the online shopping component as well. Like how are you adjusting marketing? It's a great question. And it goes to what is the role of a CMO anymore? It's not just content. Uh, it's so complex. We've got innovation we're launching. We've got supply, real supply chain issues. Uh, we're, we're, shipping, you know, we're shipping from other countries into the US and, and things are stuck in ports. So we have supply chain issues. You don't want to stimulate demand if you don't have, if you have out of stock. So you've got to coordinate that demand supply situation. I work very closely with operations on that, believe it or not. And then modern marketing is so complex. I am not the expert. So I built a leadership team that is very cross-functional and has embedded centers of excellence. So my brand management teams are actually quite small. They have to orchestrate across different teams to get their marketing done. So we have experts in media experts in in-house studio to do dynamic content. So that content factory to do media in a modern way where I'm loading a DCO to change headlines to be very contextually relevant. Then I have a culture and inclusive marketing team of six people who are experts in looking at every piece of content to make sure we're appropriate and inclusive, but also culturally relevant for the targets we're, we're trying to reach. I've got a team who's all about in-store and trade and, and shopper marketing. And we, we have what's called a media-to-shelf to uh, programming that we're uh, attempting to do so that it it's just one voice from the brand. Believe it or not, that wasn't happening. <laughs> Our field sales team used to be able to you know kind of do whatever they wanted with the brands. And now we've got a very orchestrated media-to-shelf system to make sure we are sweating those assets all the way through. But, you know, I have a finance partner, insights, analytics, legal <laughs> operations, and we meet weekly on, you know, whatever the hot issues are of the day. But it's a team sport anymore and it's very complicated. So you have to bring in experts and I'm not the expert. I'm, I just bring in the talent that I think we need to make it all happen and let them go. We just had a wonderful share out yesterday to all of our brand companies like Irish Distillers and Ireland and the Absolute Company in Sweden about our modern marketing machine and how we're seeing real results now of uh, efforts for making it. It was, it was a nice culmination of two years of work putting it together. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I see, you talk about the role of CMO and it is, it's a very complex role. There's also like a lot of things that you're facing, things like data and transparency issues. How are you thinking about that, uh, if you will, at Pernod Ricard? Yeah. So we have a great global IT team that has steeped in that. And I brought in a local expert who came from OMD Media and we are building a, a 
whole data capability and CRM capability. So when we were at Coachella, 130 people walked through the tent, swiping their band, all opt-in, right? Privacy compliant. We've got, we definitely need to build our own first party data capabilities. It's hard because we don't really have a relationship with our end consumer, but you can create data sharing agreements with retailers or platforms to, again, in clean rooms, be able to find audiences and orchestrate content that's more relevant, more sequential to, you know, the consumer's buying behavior. That's what we're doing. We ran tests last quarter and saw huge results. So we're going to, we just have to create this content factory. It's, we're talking about tens of thousands of combinations of content that is just overwhelming. You have to program it all to orchestrate seamlessly while you're sleeping, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Not not an easy task because at the end of the day, I mean, a content is still a creative, creative element, right? And it has to be interpreted and hopefully seen as good by a human, <laughs> even though a machine is probably helping to make it. Yeah. It's, that's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. We see like the littlest things can make a difference. And yeah, you know, you probably heard about it, but like, do we show ads more in the daytime or more in the evening? And and, you know, your daytime headline could be a little different than your evening headline. And so not surprising, it was like almost twice the lift if you do it in the daytime. Why is that? Oh, you're probably priming the occasion versus being there in the occasion. That makes sense. But we're playing with all of those different variables to see what um, makes a difference. Well, before we transition and talk a little bit more about you and, and reflect on on you as a person, we talked about this at the beginning almost, uh, this relationship between the CMO and the CEO and the fact that you guys have your relationship, you've worked together before, but I'm curious for other CMOs or heads of marketing that are listening to this, like, what do you feel like are the elements that make that relationship successful? That's a great question. First of all, I, I'm, I am blessed to have a CEO who understands marketing. I think that's, I think that's a problem, right? That a lot of CEOs coming either from a strict finance or sales background just may not have the understanding of how complex and nuanced marketing can be. Everyone's an expert in marketing. My dad tells me what's working, what's not working on my stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, uh, that's one. Two, the CMOs need to speak the You talk about, I speak finance. You need to be able to speak the language of business. A lot of CMOs get caught up in what I call vanity metrics, like shares, my share of conversation on social media. That, I, I think those are vanity metrics. That, that isn't something your head of sales is going to get excited about. <laughs> what am I doing to drive business growth? So I work, we talk a lot about driving brand choice. It's definitely brand marketing and it's definitely brand equity building, but it, it's about brand choice. I want We want people to walk in choosing the brands that, that we have in our portfolio to get in more than our fair share of any growth that's happening in the marketplace. And when we drive equity and we drive sales growth, we aren't just marketing, we're market makers. So I, I'm trying to say we're not marketing, we're market, market makers. How are we making the market and growing the business and through driving strong value for the brand as well, long-term sustainable growth. So I don't think, I don't pretend to know how many CMOs have that mindset orientation. I've run into several in my career who are really into the cool shit they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And it just gets old. And after a couple of years, you know, it's like, this isn't the CMO for me. So that's what, there's a, what, two and a half year tender, tenure for CMOs. Wow, I got six months to go, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think you'll outlive it. I think you'll I outlive so. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a tricky one. And to your point, like I think those are all really important elements you just outlined. And it is a it is a balance, I think, to your point. The CEO needs to some foundational understanding of marketing even if they haven't spent time in the function themselves. And to your point, the CMOs need to kind of rise rise to the occasion and be a good business partner and drive the business and talk about it in those terms. So yeah, no, I agree. It's great, great advice. Well, I want to switch gears. My favorite question to ask people that come on the show, I'm going to ask now, which is on a personal level, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Oh, interesting. I'm going to go back to my parents. Sorry. <laughs> Always comes back to your parents. But my, you know, my dad as an art teacher, art history teacher too, just never allowed us to have coloring books. <laughs> And, uh, you know, very much about you can create your own coloring books. You can, it's okay to draw outside the lines and that sense of creativity and exploration and learning. So we were constantly learning. I, I, you know, I never went and got my MBA, just life happened. I never was able to do it. And there was years where I was quite intimidated with all these hotshot MBAs that I was working with and advising. And so I over... I sort of overdid it on the self-learning side. <laughs> I have more books in this room than, <laughs> and I think I could go toe-to-toe on any topic that any MBA might bring up or any MBA professor for that matter. And so that that constant learning, I don't seek knowledge because knowledge, if if you know, you stop learning. I seek learning, the learning experience. Things are always changing. So something's changing. I need to learn again. Like what what assumptions are we making? What, what's the status quo? How do we challenge that? Is, is that still true? Is it not? Let's, so that, that constant thirst for making sure we're, I'm at the, I got the pulse of what's happening in that constant learning, I think it's still at a very, very young age. And I appreciate that more than I realized growing up in it. <laughs> we went to art museums more than I went to the movies. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to wrap my head around no coloring books. Um, yes. But... I would go over to my girlfriend's house and sneak them, but okay. <laughs> it was it was a strict rule. That's funny. That's funny. Well, I mean, that's a great gift, though, the, the gift of knowing how to learn and to thirst that, I guess, so to speak. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? I think I'm still learning of what that advice would be. I've done this exercise a number of times. I think I've been very destination focused in my career ambitions, that next promotion or that next that next big hit. And when I look back, it was the journey that I loved. It wasn't the destination. It was the stories I tell about working on a, a project with a team in an all-nighter situation. Those are like, enjoy the journey is probably what I tell myself and not worry about where you're headed, because that'll come. Just just enjoy the journey and do the great work. And, and I think I would say, having worked in some very big companies, get get a little more political savvy quick, quicker. <laughs> you, you know, you have to navigate political waters. And I've worked in some shark tanks. So, uh, you know, I, I was very naive and Pollyanna about a lot of things. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know how you get more savvy faster. I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> I don't know either, but I would love that easy button. <laughs> I mean, I like the I like the advice though. To your point about the journey, those are the things we look back on and remember most, right? Like you know, I don't even remember when stuff happened. I remember how it happened. Exactly. Remember that dream team 
and and you didn't realize it was a dream team at the moment. And then now we've all gone our separate ways and done amazing things. And you look back and you go like, wow, that two-year period at Frito-Lay, I think there were like, I don't know, 130 marketers in the, in the and I think 70% are in C-suite jobs now. See, it's incredible. Or owning their own companies and, and thriving. It's just been, we've been keeping track of it, Ann and I. It's like, wow, that, that was a real dream team, some real talent there that's, you've got, CMOs and all, all over. Well, on this quest for more knowledge or, or learning for learning's sake, what, are there topics that you think marketers need to be learning more about or you're trying to learn more about yourself right now? Well, I've been very steeped in the metaverse having entered it. Um, there's nothing like doing it and to learn it. That's for sure if you have an opportunity. Um, but there's you know books being written on it now that keep coming out. I'm really curious about where that's going to go. I have a Gen Z child. I'm an empty nester, but my 23-year-old is grew up, you know, in these platforms or games where they're meeting people and becoming friends and they haven't even met in person, right? But they are actually like friends and have met up since then. And, and, and you've met on a gaming platform. So I think the metaverse will be the next social platform more than anything. And, you know, I, I hung out with a couple thousand people on the dance floor in the metaverse with my avatar. <laughs> and it's, it's quite, quite interesting. It'll get better as, you know, the, the technology gets better and uh, it needs to go mobile at some point. But, and then if you think connected commerce, um, how web three is going to change things, um, I would definitely say any marketer needs to be keeping an eye on that. No, that makes sense. Well, uh, two more questions for you. Are there brands or causes or companies that you're following or you think other people should take notice of? Enamored with cross-brand collaborations. I don't know if you've seen the Gucci Adidas logo, the combined logo. I have not, no. (laughs) It's very cool. And I've been trying to find out how I can buy a a, a Gucci Adidas product. (laughs) It's not easy to find. But these cross-collaborations are really interesting. Like They're almost like a... It's not a borrowed equity of one and the other. It's a combined equity to create something different and unique. So that one's got my attention. I need to check that out because, I mean, to your point, that's a whole new mental space <laughs> as I think about that Adidas and, and Gucci. I, I have it as, as sort of my wallpaper on my phone right now because I... I just stare at it. It's like such a cool logo. <laughs> Who'd have thought? But I think, you know, more more of that could happen. So where, you know, what makes, what is one and one equal three versus, you know, usually, uh, especially in spirits, you have all these celebrities, borrowed equity. It's It's very temporary. It's not, I don't know. We're studying it, actually. We don't do a lot of celebrity work, but we're, we're trying to figure out if we do it, how do we do it? How do we do it? So it's it really works. And and some have worked. So we're figuring that out. Seems like, you know, I'm watching a lot of ads and there's a lot of celebrities and a lot of ads. So there's something maybe just cultural right now that that's what's getting people's attention. Well, it's definitely a, a, a cheat or a hack into culture, right? But to your point, I, I don't know that I've ever seen any studies around like what's the longevity of the impact, right? Like if I take the easy button and I pay, pay to make that happen, like, is there a long tail or is it a shorter tail than if I were to 
do some of the other stuff you talked about, like the, the instigations that may be more organic in some ways. Well, last question for you. As CMO, what do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? War for talent. <laughs> we, we have so many openings we can't fill. It's so we, you know, just having to think differently about how we're recruiting, who we're recruiting, where we're recruiting, where do they have to live, where do they have to work. It's total change the game. And then as a leader, how do you how do you have a company culture? How do you have engagement? How do you make sure it's not a transactional relationship when we're not living and working in the same space every day? How I grew up working very different, I think the next generation will grow up working. And it isn't just marketing, but in general. So culture is a really, our company, it's like the most important thing. Pernod Ricard believes its culture is its unique differentiating benefit. If you go on the web, it's a French company and they be, the purpose is creators of conviviality. And that's a French term, but it, it really means we, we've dug deep, like um, to, to translate to American, it's really about unlocking the magic of human connections. And that's our purpose. And that's what our company purposes and our brands are all in line with that purpose. So things like hate speech online, we have to be against because it's anti our purpose. So we started Engage Responsibly and gifted that to the ANA. Now 85 companies have signed on. We need to tackle hate speech online. It's not good for our brands. It's not good for human beings. It's not good for our social environment. So our culture is so critical to our, our company and it's what attracts a lot of people to our company. I came here because of your culture was different than other cultures I've worked in. But how do you maintain that in a virtual environment in a, you know, in a time where you may not get together physically as often as you need to, to instill that culture? So that's really what's been on my mind, keeping me up. Like, how do I, what do I have to do intentionally, purposely in this virtual working environment? It's, really a challenge. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And, and it's, um, it's not getting any easier as, <laughs> as the employment, everyone becomes almost fully employed and aggregate, if you will. I know there's some sections of consumers that are not as, uh, not as employed as others, but there's just less and less people to find to do the job, to do the work. And so I love how you described how your culture makes a difference. And it is a challenge to try to figure out how to make that happen in a virtual or or hybrid working environment. But well, Pam, this has been phenomenal. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.